Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and today we're going to be kicking off the first episode in a series about the subject of tears. This is something I've gotten really interested in in the last couple of weeks, uh, uh, questions about the biological origins of crying and, and things like that. But before we get started, to set the mood, I wanted to to read a poem by Walt Whitman that's all about tears. In fact, it's so much about tears, it just has the word tears followed by an exclamation point like at least six or seven times. All right. You ready for Grandpa Walt? Let's do it. Hit it. Okay. The poem goes, tears, tears, tears in the night in solitude, tears on the white shore dripping, dripping, sucked in by the sand. Tears, not a star shining, all dark and desolate. Moist tears from the eyes of a muffled head. Oh, who is that ghost, that form in the dark, with tears? What shapeless lump is that, bent, crouched there on the sand? Streaming tears, sobbing tears, 
throes, choked with wild cries. O storm embodied, rising, careering with swift steps along the beach. O wild and dismal night storm and wind. O belching and desperate. O shade so sedate and decorous by day, with calm countenance and regulated pace. But away at night as you fly, none looking. O then the unloosened ocean of tears, tears, tears. Oh, that's pretty good. Uh, so it, uh, listeners probably know I'm, I'm a big fan of Walt Whitman, but it has that, that great contrast that's in so many of his poems of the kind of uh, beautiful, flowing, expressive, like long lines and phrases, but then they're punctuated by these exclamations, just like shouting a word. Uh, and I, I almost quite don't know how to how to render that in readings. I feel like I should be yelling it, but that would probably be inappropriate to do into the microphone. I think you could look for guidance in various um, grindhouse movie trailers where they repeat the title of the the film multiple <laughs> times. You know, zombie, like you, zombie, yeah. zombie, shockma. You know that kind of thing, just over and over again. Tears, 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 coming to a theater near you. No one under seventeen will be admitted. Well, it, I guess you know you get the with the repetition in this poem, you do get the sense of of something that is coming that cannot be fully controlled. Yeah, something that is outside of yourself, and that is, of course, that is the vibe they're trying to relay in those movie trailers. That uh, by repeating the title, they're letting you know that the zombie or the shockma or whatever the case may be, it is something that cannot be contained. Right, it's a little bit out of control, and that's why you come into the theater to experience it. The train is departing. Are you going to get on before it leaves the station? Yeah. But anyway, today's topic again is is tears. And the main question that really got me interested in this subject, though I think we're, we're going to get more into this question in the second episode than in today's episode, is what is the biological origin and thus the biological purpose of emotional crying? Tears as a result of emotional states. What do emotional tears actually do? And it's important to specify the question of emotional tears, because mm. uh, the purpose of tears in, say, lubricating the eyes or in protecting them, washing them in, in, in various ways, th that's a more obvious thing that you, you, you can, you know, you can tell pretty much what's going on biologically there. But why is it that humans uh, have this upwelling of fluid in their eyes that overflows the eyelids and runs down the face? particularly in response to abstract emotional states when they're feeling joy or surprise or sadness or terror. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because we can, we can all relate to you know, getting a little dust in your eye, tears well up, and it's about washing stuff out of the eye. But you, know, you find yourself in these other situations where, you know, you're watching a Star Wars movie with your son or something and, and, mm -hmm. and the waterworks start coming. Like, clearly, there was nothing in your eye. Uh, <laughs> You're watching so Shockmo with your son and you start <laughs> crying. Oh, God. I think we, mo we both might cry if we watch Shockmo together, but not good tears. Um, yeah, this is, this is going to be a fascinating topic to discuss in this episode and an unknown number of subsequent episodes. We're going to, we're kind of taking the, the same approach with this topic that we took with our mirrors episodes. We'll, mm -hmm. we'll just see, we'll just keep going until we feel like we have finished at least for the time being. Um, but tears like mirrors, these are things that, that everyone in the, the, in the world can relate to on some level. Uh, you have uh, tears lubricating your eyes right now and we have all had had moments of uh, of emotional um, tears uh, we've had we've we've wept uh, we will weep again and then of course our art our mythology our religion our our cultures are full of tears and 
and there's not necessarily a universal understanding of what they are, how they factor into the divine, how they factor into our rites and rituals. Uh, so it's a fascinating topic to unwind. Now, a, a very just quick and handy definition of human tears comes from one of the sources I turn to, and probably one that I'll get into more in the subsequent episode or episodes, is Holy Tears, a book edited by Patton and Hawley. Um, and they, they say that tears are, quote, a physiological function in response to intense emotion or physical pain. But to come back to what we just said about emotion, I, I think we have to once more acknowledge that human beings especially have an added emotional dimension to physical pain, for example, uh, mm -hmm. as we've discussed on the show before. Tears are linked not merely to the idea of painful neural feedback, but also to the wider dimensions of human suffering. And, of course, there have been endless treatments on this, and we'll have many more in, in human culture as thinkers, dreamers, and artists contemplate the human condition. But, but one take on all of this that we see in both Western and Eastern traditions is the idea that we suffer uh, because we fixate on things and even live in be living beings that are impermanent. And we are, of course, creatures of impermanence as well. Uh, you know, nothing is going to last forever. Everything, to some degree, is ephemeral. Uh, everything, to some degree, is little more than a dream. So it's not just that there's pain. It's the emotional context of the pain, what it means for things that were and things that could or will be. Because I think one of the, you know, the, the easy to imagine and even remember and anticipate examples of human tears are like a kid falls, scrapes up their knee, and then they're crying. And, and honestly, that, that can happen with, with adults, too. It's not just a kid's thing. You, you suffer an injury, uh, you might find yourself shedding some tears. It can be, uh, you know, it, it can be a, just an automatic response. Uh, but the idea seems to be that, that in, the, in the human context, we have this additional stuff as well. You know, that we, are think, we, we may on some level be connecting to past experiences of, say, scraping our knee, the anticipation of realizing, oh, I'm going to have this annoying um, you know, injury and then scab on my knee, that sort of thing, or I am embarrassed by what happened. There are these other uh, connotations that are involved with the physical uh, uh, pain scenario. Well, in the specific scenario you describe, I couldn't help but think that one of the things that is most strongly tied to the, the tearful response in, in response to pain or emotional distress, especially in a child, is the, um, is the separation aspect. Like mm -hmm. when a child is separated from their you know, parent or caregiver, like whoever the authority figure they would turn to at this moment is. That's the thing that seems most powerfully motivating of the tears, right? Because often yeah. with a kid, like the, the the tears are there until or 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 they can start to subside, like once the parent gets to them. Yeah, and in that we get into the the the, the communication aspects of tears, which is something that we'll we'll be talking about at length as well. You know, the idea that we're when we're weeping like this. It is because someone else needs to pick up on it, uh, and there are varying degrees uh, that, that we'll discuss in that. But um, yeah, and, and another thing worth pointing out, I think, is that you know, the, obviously, that one can be in a more emotionally raw state, and then you'll find yourself more susceptible to spontaneous tears, uh, perhaps mm -hmm. over something that normally would not generate these tears, but you already have some other kind of um, emotional connotation going on in the background. Right, like you're already stressed, and then you're you're crying because like you can't get the padlock on the shed open. 
Right, right. Or yeah, or you miss a particular person, be they somebody who's just away or has um, has died. And then there's something, uh, some sort of emotional media or or even just a, like a household item you encounter. And that can be enough to push you over the edge. So it's not the idea that, you know, is it just looking at this hammer made you cry, but perhaps the, the memories associated with it, the emotions associated with it. And to come back to, you know, some of these ideas that you see in, in both Greek and in Buddhist thought, the idea that that attachment is playing a role, that you are still uh, uh, you know, suffering from attachment to this thing or this person uh, that uh, perhaps no longer is. All right. Well, before we get into the evolutionary questions, uh, the questions about the purpose of emotionally linked tear responses, we should look at some basic anatomical facts. So tears are a clear liquid that covers the eye. They're secreted by what's called the lacrimal gland. And here is an I was always wrong about this moment. I want to admit I had I had, you know, like eye tear stuff anatomy wrong my entire life until I was getting ready to do this episode. I always thought that the lacrimal gland and the tear duct were the same thing. The tear duct is, of course, uh, in the inside corner of your eye, where the eye meets the bridge of your nose. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I thought this was the same as the lacrimal gland. I thought this is where tears came from. And these, in fact, are not the same thing at all. Tears are secreted by the lacrimal gland via the lacrimal ducts, and this tear-producing apparatus is positioned actually over the top of the eye, sort of on the outside of each eye. So each eye, you think of, like, go up from the middle of it over, over where your eyebrow is and then move a little toward the outside of your head. That's where your lacrimal glands are. And now that I think about it, I guess um, uh, it would probably make sense for a gland that produces a, a fluid that's supposed to flow over the surface of the eye to be positioned above the eye instead of below it, just because, you know, gravity would sort of help move the fluid in the right direction, right? Yeah, it's like putting the water tower on the, on the roof of the building, yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I, I don't know that I would have known this previously uh, either. Uh, had it not been for the fact that my my son had uh, an issue with his tear ducts and had to have tubes put in there, uh, uh, because uh, before that he would just uh, like tears would come out for like either very easily during an emotional uh, outburst, uh, but also for no seeming reason at all. Uh, like I remember one time when he was an infant and I like moved in and I like I, I like went to kiss him on the forehead and instead I kissed him on the eyelid. And it caused uh, tears to shoot out of his um, tear duct into my mouth. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, anyway, we, it was it, no big deal. We got it, uh, got the tubes put in, and he's been fine ever since. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. I, I was actually reading that um, blockage of the tear ducts that prevents proper draining of the eye is is very common in children. There are multiple mm -hmm. reasons that can happen. Yeah, he did weep uh, uh, at least a couple of drops of blood from from those tear ducts, though, uh, right after he had the surgery. So it was, he was uh, that wow. was kind of neat, and again, not not painful, but uh, just a normal, <laughs> uh, right, uh, no, normal post uh, surgical uh, situation that they warned us about. They said, "Look, there might be some blood that comes out of the tear duct. Right. Don't freak out about it." This is not a, a biblical event or anything. No, it's no, normal but side it, effect. Yeah, okay. yeah, but it was knowing it was coming. It was kind of cool. Uh, so, yeah, you can probably hear based on what we're just talking about that the, the tear duct that is on the inside corner of the eye where the eye meets the bridge of the nose. This actually has a different function. This is not where tears come from. This is a drainage system. Uh, or if you prefer, you could think of it as the sewer of the eye. <laughs> 
Ugh, I, I don't know that I like the sound of that, but uh, but but very well. We do not allow stigmatization of sewers. Sewers are great. <laughs> so the way it works is that tears are continually produced to cover the surface of the eye, and they they stay there. The you know when you blink, it helps uh, spread the spread the tear fluid around the surface of the eye, keeps it well well uh, moistened and lubricated there, and then eventually these tears drain down into openings called puncta that are on the inside corners of your eyelids and then from here they drain down into narrow tubes in a cavity into a cavity called the lacrimal sac and again this is on the inside corners of your eyes and then finally from there they uh, they drain down into a duct where they empty into your nose and interesting note i believe based on a few things i was reading i think this is actually the main reason that your nose runs when you cry um, so, you know, when you cry, it's often not just fluid coming out of your eyes, running down your cheeks, but also like, you know, it's suddenly like you have a cold as well. Your nose might get stopped up or your nose might run. And it seems that one reason this is happening is that you've got lots of extra tears flowing into the nasal cavity via this duct system where they mix with nasal mucus and they form this mucusy liquid of a thinner consistency than normal, which sort of drips out your nose holes and down the back of your throat. It's, it's easy to forget given that we we see we probably consume uh, a lot more like media crying and movie crying you don't always have the the snot involved during the the movie crying sometimes yeah. you do and when when it's there i applaud it cuz i'm like that's real yes. there's some real waterworks yeah, yeah, the sanitized crying. It's like how in movies when uh, an attractive actor, uh, they like get into some big scuffle, you know, they've been like rolling around in the mud and all that, but then they come up and then like their hair is still perfect and their makeup mm -hmm. is perfect and they still look super great. Yeah. Uh, they, they do the same thing with crying. There's like a sanitized unreality to crying in movies where they, they still want you to like look cool. So they're not going to give you like a red runny nose. They're just going to have the single tear going down the cheek. Yeah, and and you know I have wondered in the past with with certain actors who are known for this ability, if perhaps sometimes they do have some sort of a tear duct situation that allows them to like easily produce a tear without like actively engaging the rest of their their face, mm. uh, because yeah, it's a, 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 like a full on bawling situation. Sometimes the snot you're going to have snot involved. You're going to have like red puffy faced uh, a situation going on, and yeah, you don't you don't see that as much in films or at least not in uh, you know the big big mainstream films. Well, one thing I was reading about is that some people have conditions where their eyes are too dry, like they, mm -hmm. they don't have enough of the the, the standard tear fluid um, over their eyes and and one way of dealing with this is a procedure that I think at least partially blocks the ducts that are draining away from the eyes normally. And one side effect of this procedure, if you have to get it to, to help moisten your eyes better, is that with that blockage, now if you start crying, you don't get a runny nose. Huh, interesting. Now, this just brings to, to mind all sorts of, of possible nightmare scenarios where an actor is getting a bunch of um, like nasal surgery done <laughs> yes. purely so that they can cry on command without experiencing a runny nose or, yes. or a blushing of the face. Oscar bait scenes without yeah. the snot that would that would make them look unattractive. But I think it's 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 interesting that we are you know we're talking about the 
like the, the physical complexity of tear production and how integrated it is with the you know the rest of the plumbing of our face, mm-hmm. uh, because that does match up with a lot of what we just said about uh, in the, the human emotional uh, context. You know how how our emotions are so wrapped up in all of these other processes as well. So uh, it, it feels like a, a it, it feels right that these two things should both be so embedded in uh, who we are. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a hundred thousand miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left, look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices... Well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. 
If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Now, researchers have noted basically three broad categories of tears that are present in humans. There, there are three different ways you can make tears. Uh, the first is what we've already been talking about, which is basal tears. Basal tears are not a response to anything in particular. Instead, basal tears are what is always present. It's always being produced by the lacrimal gland, always coating the surface of the eye and then draining away gradually through the tear ducts on the inner eye. And uh, one reason we blink, actually, is to help keep this ever-present layer of basal tears evenly spread out over the eyeballs. An interesting fact I discovered about basal tears. They are not a homogenous liquid. They instead consist of a number of distinct components that tend to settle into layers when coating the eye. And so going from the inside out, I'm going to mention the three different layers. So the first layer, the closest to your eye, is the mucus layer. And at this layer, tears contain this, this mucus that is, I believe, secreted by epithelial cells within the eye itself rather than from the lacrimal gland. Um, and this helps the tear film stick to the surface of the eye. Mm. This would be similar to the way that a lot of the tissues uh, inside the body have a layer of epithelial cells that serve to secrete a mucus that helps like uh, lubricate or somehow protect the inner surface of or the outer surface of the organ. Then after that, there is the watery layer or the aqueous layer, and this is the bulk of the salty tear liquid. This is secreted by the lacrimal glands. But then on top of that, there is a lipid layer or oily layer, the oily coat on top of the tears. So the sea of your tears on your eye is topped by an oil slick, and this apparently helps protect the liquid layer. It slows down evaporation and so forth. So when you consider your tears, know that they do in fact contain multitudes. Uh, however, all of this is present even when we're not thinking about tears because they're not overflowing the eyelids, uh, just in the normal cycle of, of blinking and lubrication and so forth. That's all just in the basal tears. What about these other two kinds of tear responses present in humans? Well, the next kind that you would want to look at is known as reflex tears or maybe irritant tears. And this is when the eye overflows with tears in response to a physical condition. So if you get sand in your eye or if you punish yourself with volatile sulfur compounds from chopping onions with a dull knife, this, this is the eye detecting irritation of some kind and going into self-cleaning mode, producing lots of tears to protect itself and to wash away potential contaminants. 
But then finally, you get into the most enigmatic category, which is emotional tears, uh, and and this is the, this is the really strange and interesting one: the welling of tears in the eyes, and the absence of a physical cause in the eye itself, but owing instead to an abstract emotional state. And while the other two categories of tears can be found in other animal responses, uh, it's the emotional tears that apparently, at least uh, according to many researchers are pretty much unique to Homo sapiens. I think it's pretty widely agreed that Homo sapiens are the only extant animal that that, emo- that cries emotionally, that produces emotional tears, and certainly on a regular basis. So this brings us back to this interesting question. Why do we shed tears when we're overcome with joy or sadness or even surprise? These things that are originally there to lubricate and protect the eye and then maybe to sort of overflow and wash out irritants in the case of some kind of physical distress, why would they show up when you see a dog getting reunited with its owner? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think you know, the, the animal videos uh, certainly get to a lot of us or, or cheetah and dog who are friends. That's another one. Any, any baby animal. Yeah, why, why do we need? It's not like those things are are going going to emit particles that could uh, right. irritate our eyes, and then our eyes are like, "Oh no, here comes a cute animal." Right, it's going to be dusty. That would be great if there was like an emotion, you know. So you just know that whenever there's a cute animal, it's also emitting like oniony sulfur compounds that are going to get <laughs> in your eyes, and uh, so you, it's it's protective like that. But no, I mean, we don't know of anything of that kind. Or at least there's nothing obvious of that kind. So. You got to look to other explanations, though. Actually, there is one explanation that's that's almost certainly a bad explanation for the evolutionary origins of tears. But I'm going to mention it later in this episode just because it's uh, it's it's kind of funny to consider, even though it's almost definitely wrong. But it, it sort of follows this method. Anyway, we'll come back to that. So it seems a major clue in looking at uh, at the the evolutionary purpose of tears to observe that emotional tears seem to be pretty much unique to human beings. The Roman poet Juvenal said, uh, "Nature, in giving tears to man, confessed that he had a tender heart. This is our noblest quality." So you know, like Juvenal's observing something unique about human beings being able to cry. Uh, uh, Noble tears, tears that have a meaning rather than just being like washing out irritation from the eye sockets. This is, of course, something that uh, that comes up quite a bit in Holy Tears, that book I referenced earlier from Patton and Holly. Uh, they're, they're the editors, but it contains uh, work by other authors, um, other bits of scholarship about tears and how they factor mm-hmm. into rites and religion. Uh, but yeah, we, we tend to look at the human condition and we say, okay, humans are capable of these complex emotional states. They're, they're capable of feeling sorrow and empathy. Also, we, we, we shed tears uh, in many of these emotional states. And then we just, uh, we kind of assume that these two things are one. That mm-hmm. that uh, that we that we have tears, therefore we have emotional states. We have emotional states, therefore we have tears, and uh, and and we see that bleed over into our conception of various supernatural entities as well. All of our our human like uh, uh, creatures and beings and myth and re- religion. There are all these stories of, of course, not only mythological heroes and demigods shedding tears, but God. Um, itself shedding tears, also various monsters and creatures shedding tears. Uh, and, uh, and and so the, it's interesting to take all of that, and then you look to the animal world, and I, I think in doing so, we do have to stress that that ultimately, when we're, we, even if we're saying an animal 
does not shed tears or another like primate, for instance, does not shed emotional tears. It does not mean that they don't have emotional states. Right. Um, and and, uh, and in a way that that this is kind of an overstatement of the obvious, but I think it's it's so important to drive home because the idea of of human emotions and tears are so closely linked, like they're just inseparable. Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying there, and I think that's a very good point. You, a person could naively assume, oh, well, because if it's the case that only humans really shed tears in response to emotions, that must mean humans have like better, more sophisticated emotions than animals do, or or more powerful emotions than animals do. You can't necessarily conclude that. I mean, one doesn't follow from the other. Yeah. So you know, it's, I think ultimately we can all engage our creativity. We can imagine alien species. Uh, you know, in a Star Wars or Star Trek kind of scenario, we can easily imagine beings that have complex emotional states, at least on par with human beings, that don't shed tears like we do. Maybe they do something else that that uh, communicates uh, their emotional state to others. Maybe it's a change in coloration. Maybe they emit a certain odor. Maybe it's uh, some sort of a, a light-based scenario or, I don't know, um, if we're going to try and come up with something that is on par with uh, and maybe ultimately as mysterious as why why is why are my eyeballs producing extra liquid maybe it's like extra sweating you know right. you're, you're at a funeral so what do you do you sweat you sweat with everybody else um, or you salivate uh, a lot that's the kind of thing emotional flatulence I mean there could be all kinds <laughs> of things like the body could release all kinds of substances in response to powerful emotions right but this is the adaptation that our ancient ancestors uh, somehow acquired, and, and the question would be, how did they acquire it, and why? Now, in uh, in Holy Tears, there's a, there's a wonderful little line. There's so many great lines in this, but uh, I want to read this quick one before I move forward. Quote, among the very earliest expressions of distress in the infant's range, tears remain a profound existential signifier at all stages of human life, particularly in the face of fear, loss, or despair. And I think that's true. I think that's a that's a great statement. But I started looking around a little bit, and uh, I realized, oh, uh, newborn babies don't actually shed emotional tears. And this is, I, I have to admit, I, I don't have a lot of experience with the very young children, so maybe I just haven't been around enough, like, brand new babies, like, less than a month old sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But... The, uh, the the fact seems to be that the eyes of an infant remain pretty dry for the first two weeks of life. Now, their, uh, their tear glands are functional, uh, but they don't make enough of the stuff uh, for it to be seen as, as, as obvious tears in the eye. So they might, they might be bawling, for example, and you're not going to see you know, the waterworks flowing. After two weeks, however, those glands are going to boost production, and most children, according to Karen Gill, MD, writing for Healthline, create full tears between one and three months into their lives. That is interesting because it makes you think about what are the components of crying. Uh, again, this is something that will probably become more significant when we talk about a lot of uh, some of the, the major theories in the next episode. But uh, crying entails multiple behavioral signals, right? Right. So an infant can cry and it would do a thing that everybody would recognize as crying. And you would say, yeah, that's crying even without shedding liquid tears running down its face. I mean, it will make a 
a vocalization. You see like contortions of the face in a certain way and uh, a kind of like screaming or bawling. And everybody knows that's crying, even though the tears are not present. And yet once you reach a certain age, the tears are present. And we start to think of tears as an important part of crying, especially adult crying. Yeah. Yeah. So on one level, when we're looking elsewhere in the animal world, we have to be very specific about what we're talking about with crying. Uh, and this was pointed out by a professor in comparative biology, Kim A. Bard, uh, in a bit she wrote for Scientific America, pointing out that crying has been used to describe just the vocalization of various primates. So if you're just yeah. very generally saying, well, do other primates cry? Well, yes, other primates do cry out. They create vocalizations. And, and obviously, you know, these vocalizations are about communicating something uh, to other creatures and or other primates. But if we're indeed going to focus in on tears and, quote, tearful sobbing, then humans do seem to be alone. It, it doesn't mean, again, that we're the only primates capable of feeling, say, sorrow or other complex emotions. We don't really have a firm answer on that count uh, yet, but there, I, I think there's some, some strong arguments to be made. Uh, but we're the only ones who shed tears of sorrow. Right. Now, uh, I think a lot of you probably, your brains went to the same place as mine did at this point. And I, my, I thought, well, what about Neanderthals? Hmm. Did these intelligent relatives of humans that went extinct about 40,000 years ago, did they shed tears like we do? Right. I mean, I guess this would be a question in part of how far back the emotional tear adaptation goes. Like, did our, you know, the common ancestor of Neanderthals and Homo sapiens have this tear response that it would, would give to both of them? Or, or is it a more unique uh, property of Homo sapiens specifically? Yeah. And then also, I, I think it's, it's, it's worth thinking about uh, and exploring to, to, to a limited extent, uh, because you think about, well, what can... What, what, what could Neanderthals do? Like, what do we know that they had that, that modern humans also had and have? You know, mm -hmm. they had access to various technologies. They created art. And uh, depending on, on how you look at uh, the artifacts, they may have engaged in funeral rites as well. So on one hand, it seems like a lot of the things that we attribute to the human condition and human, uh, you know, civilization even, and the emotional states associated with them, we can look to the Neanderthal world and say, well, they had these things. So perhaps, you know, so, so it seems like they had emotional states like we did, but does that mean that they could produce tears as well? Emotional tears. Not necessarily a given. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I, so I started looking into this a little bit, and um, it's, uh, it's interesting because the topic was somewhat muddled uh, by some scholarship in the mid-90s. There was a, I believe this was a, a 1996 uh, uh, article uh, that came out in uh, PNAS, uh, Significance of Some Previously Unrecognized uh, Apomorphies in the Nasal Region of Homo Neanderthalensis. And this was uh, from a, a pair of researchers, Schwartz and Tattersall. Okay, so uh, to clarify in that title, apomorphies would refer to uh, unique traits, unique physical traits of a, of a species. Right. And so this particular paper, uh, uh, basically what it was doing is looking at various uh, remains of Neanderthals and claiming that th th there, were th there were aspects of their nasal uh, uh, makeup that seemed to be different from humans and all other primates, and they were so. And, and one of these was the idea 
that tear ducts seem to be absent. And this caused quite a stir at the time uh, because, oh, well, this this was, this was on one hand, this would be amazing if we found this out. Like, what does this mean that Neanderthals seem to be distinct from uh, all other uh, primates? Uh, and then it ended up being kind of hijacked to a certain extent, I've read, by creationists who wanted to put the spin on it. Oh, this means that Neanderthals, they couldn't cry. Humans can cry. We're the king of crying. Uh, we're, the, we're the only children <laughs> of God. God can cry. We can cry. Apes, Neanderthals, no crying for you guys. We're the best. Uh, oh, I which, see. The divine spark exists only in crying brain. Yeah, which kind of goes back to that that juvenile uh, quote from earlier, right? Like this is yeah. this is what humans do, uh, so nothing else does it, and so uh, this, you know, which makes to, us the noblest of all, is what right, right. Yeah. But the, the the curious thing about this is that it's such a misread on the paper because for one thing, the original researchers here they they were not trying to make that point. If anything, yeah. they were making the opposite point. Neanderthals were something special. Uh, not human. Humans, you know, have have pretty much uh, all the other things in common with the other uh, primates' nasal features. They were saying, "Oh, the nasal features of Neanderthals, they this looks distinct. These guys are special." So, if you were going to take some sort of religious message out of that, it seems like you might want to say, "Well, the Neanderthals were the true children of God, because uh, God decided to give them special uh, nas- nasal cavities." I don't know. Um, but uh, at any rate, this particular uh, uh, paper and this particular study, um, it, it, it was a, a bit controversial at the time I've read, and subsequently other researchers argue that the findings were based on, and this is from a 1999 PNAS published rebuttal, uh, it was based on, quote, reliance on specimens with damaged, incomplete, or in some cases entirely absent relevant anatomy. Ah, so what they were inferring about the uh, supposed lack of tear ducts in in the Neanderthals could have actually not been based on what was something not something universal to Neanderthal anatomy, but just based on uh, problems with the specific like skeletal remains they were looking at. Right, and you know this is just this is we see this in plenty of other uh, studies as well. I mean, this is just kind of how science works. Sometimes there's something missing. It seems seems like it might be something. Mm-hmm. Uh, paper is published about it, and then subsequently there's kind of a course correction on it. But it, I think it does. I've read that it still kind of remains out there. You'll still see this brought up, particularly by um, you know, some some creationist websites that will mm-hmm. try and use it to prop up this idea that that human beings are are distinct from other primates and therefore uh, are not an evolved species or something to that effect. Hmm. So to, to be clear, Neanderthals, they had tear ducts uh, like other primates. But the, the question that is still outstanding, I guess, would be, did they or would they have been capable of shedding emotional tears like human, uh, like modern humans do? And that is just, I, that's something I don't think we have an answer to. I'm not sure if right. we'll, we could ever have an answer to that unless we had a time machine, though I guess... Well, Perhaps it's conceivable that something could be worked out with genetics, but um, uh, maybe. I mean, it, that seems like something. Yeah, a genetic marker could be possible that gives a predisposition to a certain kind of behavior. But, uh, but yeah, that, that's difficult because like emotional weeping is something that may not leave any kind of physical trace at all that you could detect. I mean, yeah. it might it's something that's just a behavior that may or may not have recognizable genetic markers uh, that, yeah. that point to it. Yeah, I guess for me, I'm I'm loath to take emotional tears away from Neanderthals 
just because (laughs) for no other reason, it's because we have, again, this such a strong link between tears and emotional states. Like, I don't want to just assume that Neanderthals did not have emotional states. You know what I'm saying? It just seems... Oh, right, because of that that bad intuition we were talking about earlier. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it seems kind of tacky considering the rise of, of modern humans. Uh, you know, may have would have played some role in the extinction of Neanderthals, though the exact role is uh, a matter of debate. You know, could could be just be a matter of uh, you see the the arguments range from outcompeting them for resources to like actually hunting them down and uh, and killing them that sort of thing. But wh- whatever the truth there, I mean, as we talked about earlier, the the presence or absence of weeping as a response to to emotion is not uh, indicative of whether or not there is underlying emotion or the or the properties of that emotion. Yeah. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. 
it's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Now, this whole discussion about uh, ancient ancient humans and, and Neanderthals has gotten me thinking about one answer that's been given to the question of the evolutionary origins of uh, of tearful sobbing. And I'm citing this because it's, it's interesting and kind of funny, not because it is a good explanation. I think this is almost definitely wrong. Uh, but I came across this in a book I'll probably refer to again in, uh, in the next episode. This is a book by a Dutch psychologist named Ad Vingerhoots called Why Only Humans Weep, Unraveling the Mysteries of Tears from Oxford University Press, 2013. And Vingerhoots, as best I can tell, seems to be one of the leading experts in the world on the, the origins of crying. He's looked into this question a lot. He's got a whole book about it. So he will definitely come up again in the next episode. But anyway, so he, he's, he's running through a list of all the different explanations people have given for for the origin of emotional weeping. And one of these is a hypothesis that was advanced by a neuroscientist and uh, an expert in emotions named Paul McLean. And so here I want to quote from uh, from Vingerhoot's summary. Quote, He argued that our emotional tears originated about 1.4 million years ago when the use of fire became more common and our ancestors burned the corpses of their beloved family and tribe members. According to McLean, in a a work published in 1990, it was the smoke from these fires that might initially have generated tear-producing reflexes. Subsequently, the production of tears became a conditioned reflex due to the association of fire and ceremonies with emotional events. Now, on one level, I love this explanation because <laughs> like, it really works on kind of a mythological level. This would be a great like, story to tell is when they first started burning the smoke, it got in their eyes. You know, it, it almost has that sort of folktale quality to it. Right. Uh, I, I think this is a really bad explanation in terms of uh, scientific or evolutionary reasoning because, for one thing, a, a conditioned response learned by our ancient ancestors having to do with funerary practices – Uh, There's really no explanation of how a conditioned response like that, a learned response, could turn into a genetically determined anatomical response. Because, like, 
you know, babies don't need to learn to shed emotional tears from adults. It, you know, it, clearly emotional tears are something that just kind of happens naturally with humans. It doesn't need to be learned from experiencing fires at funerals or anything like that. Yeah, they've they've mastered it pretty early on. It's just yeah. we we learn from them really. Right. So, yeah, it's clear. It's like it's a genetically determined uh, behavior at this point. It is in our bodies. It's not something that you have to pick up from culture, really. Though, of course, there are lots of cultural variations in how exactly emotional weeping comes through. It, it's clear that there's a there's an underlying uh, baseline that's in our bodies and in our DNA. Yeah. The other thing Vingerhoots points out is a, a real reason to think this is not a good explanation for the uh, biological origins or purpose of crying is that it's hard to see how tears here would have any additional survival value. So, right, if you're imagining when humans, they started they started using fires and used fires in their funeral rites um, and thus came to associate feelings of sadness and loss with irritation of the eyes and this made them weep. And you would have to imagine that, like, the people who wept the most – uh, I guess as a, you know, who got the most smoke in their eyes or got the, or got the most eye irritation and wept the most in response to it would have some kind of, uh, some kind of additional survival or reproduction as opposed to people who didn't, whose eyes didn't well up a lot at, at funerals where smoke was getting in their faces. It, it just doesn't seem very plausible. You can't really imagine scenarios where that leads to, uh, having additional kids that survive further into the future. I mean, unless we lived in a world where the uh, the old saying "smoke follows beauty" is actually true, uh-huh. and then you might have a situation where you're like, "Oh, look at Thag's eyes; he's a mess. Yeah. Clearly, he's been getting <laughs> all the campfire smoke. Uh, he is the most beautiful. He is the most desired mate." Again, it's very fun, like the level of a, a kind of myth or folktale. But I think, as a scientific hypothesis, this one just doesn't really work. But I do think this is a good illustration of how people are kind of scrambling about for explanations of uh, unrecognizable periods of human history. Mm -hmm. Like if humans are the only animals that produce emotional tears, you see people wanting to find some very, very characteristically human cause of this adaptation, right? Which would make people kind of want to reach to early the examples of culture, like human culture as a, as a cause for it, though I think that's not necessarily the right place to look. Um, one more very unlikely explanation I wanted to visit before we wrap up today. Uh, apparently, some people have used the aquatic ape hypothesis ah. uh, to explain the origins of uh, emotional tears. Now, if you're interested in our, our take on uh, aquatic ape, we several years back we did an episode on this. The uh, the aquatic ape hypothesis uh, was uh, originally put forward by a biologist named Alistair Hardy. It has uh, since been championed by a scholar named Elaine Morgan. Um, and essentially the idea is that a lot of the traits that are unique to Homo sapiens are evolved because our ancestors were semi-aquatic. Uh, so like they, they spent a lot of time in the water, maybe fishing around for mollusks and, and swimming and things like that. And this is used to explain the relative hairlessness of humans. That was for aerodynamics in the water. Upright walking was comes from wading around in the water uh, and so forth. Uh, now, as we concluded in the, the previous episode, I think the, the aquatic ape hypothesis is really, really unlikely to be true uh, for a, a number of reasons. But 
one of the main ones is that you would have to say, okay, well, if humans lost all of these traits like walking around on all fours and, and having very hairy bodies in order to be in the water, how come when they supposedly came out of the water, they retained all of those adaptations to the water? You would have to come up with ways of saying, well, uh, it turned out those adaptations proved useful on the land as well for some reason. But then, but then if you have that, why couldn't they just have been adaptive on the land to begin with? Plus, there's no direct evidence for the aquatic ape uh, scenario. So th this just seems like, um, you know, it's kind of it's fun to imagine, but it, it really has no direct evidence going for it. Yeah, it's 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 a fun topic to, to read about and to, to discuss even because it it's it's kind of like imagining a scenario where you need to get across the woods from point A to point B. And, uh, you know, someone might ask, well, why can't we take this path? Uh, well, sometimes taking that path, you can realize, oh, this is the harder path after all. It seems like it's shorter, but you have to cross a number of streams to get there. You have to, you right. have to do a lot more work, even though at the, on the outset, it seems like it is the, the most straightforward path. Uh, it's not. Uh, but then, and then the other thing about it too, is that the aquatic ape hypothesis, why, you know, while, while incorrect, it, if if you learn about it, you do learn about other other uh, you know, scientific topics uh, that are accurate. I mean, you are learning a, a little bit about uh, about uh, the the evolution of uh, aquatic mammals and so forth. It just doesn't have anything to do directly with what uh, our bodies have done, right? Like it's still beyond amazing to to look at a, a whale and realize that this was once a kind of uh, shaggy wolf type creature yeah. uh, li living along the shore and catching fish in the water, uh, and that eventually it would it would become this you know behemoth, uh, this leviathan uh, you know of the ocean. Mm. Uh, it, that's that's amazing stuff. Oh yeah, it is. Uh, and and uh, you know, it's it's a very it's very seductive because it's cool to imagine mm -hmm. uh, humans becoming like semi-aquatic creatures and and adapting this way. I mean, I, I think the aquatic ape hypothesis is, uh, despite uh, not having a lot of uh, explanatory power and no direct evidence for it, I think it's attractive to people on. The same basis that, for example, a lot of like conspiracy theories are, which is that mm -hmm. it, this is something I know I've said on the show before, but I think a lot of times people underestimate how much people believe certain things because it's fun to believe them. Yeah. The sort of like entertainment or interest first theory of epistemology that people are attracted to certain explanations of the real world not really because of anything about how well they explain things, but because it's pleasurable to believe certain things about the world, like entertaining certain theories like the aquatic ape theory is kind of mentally exciting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, these uh, various uh, sort of fringe hypotheses, uh, you know, some of which that we've uh, explored on the show before, uh, they can they can almost fill the space of religion in in the mind. Yeah, uh, you know they can be this this thing that and I think ultimately that's perhaps the the healthier way to uh, to correspond with some of them to say, uh, you know, for, for instance, I really like the aquatic ape theory. Do I think it's real? No, but I, I think it is a, a an interesting topic to look at, and perhaps you can even expand on it and imagine fictional worlds in which uh, it, this is the path that human evolution took. I don't know. Totally, totally, yeah. Um, so anyway, the, the the aquatic ape hypothesis encompasses also among the many things it purports to explain. It has been alleged that it also explains uh, uniquely human tear traits. Um, 
But I, I guess maybe we need to wrap up the first part here. But when we come back in the next episode, uh, we can talk about some of the major theories, uh, leading theories today about why humans shed tears as an emotional response. And there's also something I want to look at in the next episode, which is a very interesting. What is the origin of the concept of crocodile tears? There's a lot of fun in this. Uh, just one little teaser on that. Apparently, some ancient and medieval sources alleged that as a crocodile was eating uh, an animal or maybe even eating a human, it would shed tears in order to tenderize the head of the animal it was eating. <laughs> I don't know how that allegedly works. but Oh, wow. All right. Well, that, that sounds like it'll be fun. Uh, more on this topic, but with a little uh, uh, medieval uh, uh, medievalism thrown in there as well. So, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. In the meantime, if you would like to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you'll find them all in the uh, all the episodes in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. You'll find that wherever you get your podcasts. We have core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, a rerun on the weekend, artifact episode on Wednesday, listener mail on Monday, and on Fridays we do a Weird House Cinema episode. That's our time to set aside most of the science and just talk about a weird movie. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your mind stuff to blow your mind is a production of iHeartRadio. for more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.
We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work.